0: Thank you, Bonnie and Linda. Spectacular, as always. Herod, I'm just glad to see you there. It makes me very happy. It just makes me, my heart glad. Um, Alright, well, if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Genesis chapter 41. And today we're going to finish the chapter out. Actually, and just so everyone's aware, Joseph's story, if you haven't already figured, is much wordier than all of the other stories combined. Um, there's a lot of very long chapters that go through Joseph's story, and there's different reasons for that. Part of it is just because of the way the story is told. It's very different than Abraham's or Isaac's or even Jacob's, really. Um, so we're going to have to be breaking up these chapters frequently. Um, anyway, so I just wanted to warn you in advance. Regardless of that, last week... Uh, Last week we discussed how Joseph, he was still in the prison, um, even after interpreting the cupbearer's dreams and the baker's dreams, and ultimately he was still there. And we found out two years later, Pharaoh, who was the king of Egypt, he had a dream. In fact, he had two dreams, which he interpreted as they both meant the same thing, but he couldn't figure out what it was. And so he brought all the wise men of Egypt, he brought all those who could discern, and ultimately no one could give him a satisfactory answer as to what it was that he was dreaming about. And so eventually, it was the chief cupbearer who Joseph had previously interpreted the dream. And he said, "What? talk to this guy, this Hebrew slave. And so Joseph was brought out, and ultimately, he was able to interpret the dream to satisfaction, at least we think. We don't know yet. Um, well, you do, because you've read this story. <laughs> um, and so that's where we're at, though. We're at the point of he just interpreted the dream, and now he's going to give a bit of wisdom as to what Pharaoh should now do. And then we'll go from there to the end of the chapter to see what happens. So starting with verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve. For the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. So, as we see, Joseph continues to personify wisdom in Genesis. After giving the interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams, he then gives recommendations as to what to do with this knowledge. They already know that what will happen is God's will. Now is the time for a response because God. Has graced them with foreknowledge necessary to react. Joseph then recommends selecting a wise man to be placed over all of Egypt. The purpose of this is to have an individual who will oversee everything that is necessary to survive the seven years of famine. Um, However, it is not only one man who will fulfill such a task. Indeed, there will be need for other overseers who will be able to watch over the land and collect what is necessary during the time of harvest. Their purpose is to gather one fifth of the food from the land and store it in the cities. As such, when the famine occurs, they will be prepared with food which they had gathered. And in the midst of me saying all this, I just had another thought for a sermon. How great! (laughs) I did not hit on this today. Um, Scrap it all. Let's just do it. No, I just can't. We won't do that. So, all in all, Joseph's recommendations show us his wisdom. Indeed. We can think of Proverbs 6, 6 through 11, which says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her fruit in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. In other words... Joseph is doing not what the sluggard would do. He's saying we have to do something completely different. And this also goes with Proverbs 24, which says, The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. So again, we see this element of wisdom from Joseph. So Joseph, again, he continues to be an individual who not only holds wisdom and possesses wisdom, but he practices wisdom as well. And it shows in his interpretation. And what he recommends. So now we come to what Pharaoh's response is. To so all of this, this is what Pharaoh responds to. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom, the Spirit, whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he said to him, Ride in this chariot, second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all of the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath-Paneah. And he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. All right. So these verses represent the complete and total reversal of Joseph's situation. We find that the words of Joseph had pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Pharaoh does not punish Joseph for the somewhat depressing interpretation. Instead, he himself saw it was a threatening dream as he described it previously. And if you want to go back, we can uh, look at that some other time, or you can listen to the sermon from last week. This leads him to say to the servants who they could find, Like Joseph, who has the Spirit of God in them. The Spirit of God is often depicted as being with individuals throughout the Old Testament. As such, even Pharaoh recognizes Joseph, he's been blessed, and wonders aloud if there is another like him. Pharaoh, though, answers his own question. He recognizes that the interpretation itself did come from God through Joseph, and if God uses Joseph in such a way, then clearly he has been given discernment and wisdom. Because of this, Joseph will be made over the house of Pharaoh. That is, he was made into a grand vizier, so to speak, one who oversaw the country on behalf of Pharaoh. This is similar to a similar situation thus far with, let's say, Potiphar, where, where with Potiphar, he controlled the house of Potiphar. However, the personal arrangements Potiphar left to himself, but the rest of the household was under Joseph's control. So it is now. Joseph is in control over all of Egypt except for what is Pharaoh's personal affairs, basically. At this point, Pharaoh emphasizes the point by giving Joseph his signet ring, clothing him, and was given a gold chain around his neck. All of these things which symbolize such an, an appointment have been found actually in archaeology. Consider Wenham, um, who is one of the scholars I read. He says, The wall paintings on the tomb at tel el Amarna. Show Tutu's appointment by the Pharaoh, who is putting the golden necklace of office around his neck. They also show him leaving the palace, getting into his chariot, and riding off as the people prostrate themselves before him, uh, before him, acclamation. We have also learned that there were many Semites, so people from Canaan, who rose to important figures in Egypt from the Middle Kingdom. Hiskos and the New Kingdom eras. So basically, this kind of a thing is actually a fairly common event. Um, it wasn't that the Egyptians were so anti-everybody else, xenophobic as we call it, but they actually did bring in wise people who they thought as wise and let them have control over the country. Thus, everything we learn about Joseph's appointments from the scriptures is what actually we would expect, since this is what we have found from those time periods in other places, such as we have just seen with this individual tutu. Ultimately, Pharaoh gives Joseph a new name, Zephenath-Paneah. Most scholars are unsure of the meaning of the name, though there is some speculation, such as it could mean hiding discoverer, or the god has said he will live, or even the man he knows. Any of them could fit with what has occurred with Joseph thus far in his life. Likewise, Pharaoh gave him Asenath as a wife, as she was the daughter of Potiphar, not Potiphar, um, who was a priest of On. On was another name for Heliopolis, which was a city significant for sun worship. As such, by changing his name and giving him an Egyptian wife from a high family, it put Joseph uh, well established in Egyptian society. So then we come to what happens next. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put it in every city, the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Um, Just a few bits of information about this. These few verses give us some information on Joseph's age, first of all, um, that he was 30 years old when he began serving Pharaoh. It also tells us the fulfillment of the first half of the dream, as there were, in fact, seven years of abundance. As such, Joseph went to work doing as he recommended, collecting food for the time of famine. As such, Joseph does all these things. He goes over all of Egypt gathering food. He ended up storing the the grain in great abundance. The abundance was truly great as it is described as the sand of the sea, um, to the point where it is so much that it's even immeasurable. They can't even count how much they have of it. And so it's all so far pretty good. Now we come to verse 50. Before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, Proustavon, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So these verses describe Joseph's family life during this time period. As it is, all is well. We learn that he had two sons during this time. Thus, not only was his work plentiful, Um, And not only was the land abundant, but also his family was abundant with two sons. The first of them is named Manasseh. The meaning of the name is provided by Joseph as means of thanking God. For despite all the hardships which have occurred, um, God had blessed him, and all the sorrows had been forgotten because of what God has done. Now the second son is named Ephraim. Again, Joseph provides the interpretation, naming him as a reflection of God's provision of faithfulness in the land of his affliction. Now, there are two things to consider. Uh, The first is how God has truly blessed Joseph. And the second is how this will reflect those who will be oppressed by the Egyptians during the Exodus period. Just like Joseph, they too will be fruitful, but they will also be in a land of their own affliction. So then we come to the final few verses of the chapter. No, just kidding. we got a few more. Then seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the lands of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So unfortunately, the time of abundance does, in fact, come to an end. And just as Joseph had interpreted, there came a severe famine. It was such a severe famine that it was not only in Egypt that it occurred, but we notice this as but in all the lands. Such famines are common even today. And back then, where there were fewer people, most of whom lived in a centralized location, um, you can imagine that it would be a significant thing for a famine to affect this area of land. Yet because of the foresight given by God to Joseph, Egypt did have food. Indeed, even those in Egypt were in need. And ultimately, Pharaoh gave the order to the Egyptians to speak with Joseph. And Joseph is put in control of the situation. And what was needed to be done was his will. Um, So now we come to the final few verses. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold the Egyptians for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Did I not put it on there, Betsy? No, it's okay. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. So I forgot to put this up on the bullet on the PowerPoint. But basically, these final verses of the chapter reflect on all that has happened. Joseph opens up the storehouses and sold the food to those who were in need. Yet we also find that the famine, again, was great even beyond the borders of Egypt. Um, others then came to Egypt in order to find food. So this then sets the stage for what will happen next. If the famine is occurring all over the world, will Joseph's family be afflicted? That's the question, and we'll answer it shortly. So come back next week. The main point of these verses are to show Joseph's sudden rise to power, though. Though he began as a Hebrew slave who interpreted dreams by God's grace, he ends up becoming the vizier over all of Egypt because of the interpretations given to him by God and the wisdom he displayed under the circumstances. He did all he recommended by storing up food during the abundant period. And not only was there abundance of food, but his family grew as well by God's grace. Yet dark times were still ahead, and the famine does in fact come, and it does hit the world. And Joseph is is then charged with dealing with the food during the years of famine, and as the Egyptians themselves are in need, so is all the world in need. And that's the end of that chapter. All right, so I have two application points for this one. Last week, we looked at the necessity of being an interpreter in this world. That is, how it is important for us to encourage individuals to be like Joseph, who glorified God in what he was called to do. The same is true with each of us in our own callings. In this way, we can be interpreters and we can express the glory of God in what we do, just as Joseph had done. But along with that, I mentioned something curious, which I somewhat glossed over, too, because I wanted to hit on it this week. And that is how Pharaoh was given a dream by God. What is curious about this is how Pharaoh is a king in a foreign land. Indeed, he was pagan through and through i'm unsure you can get much more pagan than considering yourself deity yet to this individual god himself gave a dream of as a warning so why is that curious because oftentimes we believe that the only good that god can do is through us Because of this, we tend to be increasingly against the things around us. We are against scientists because they are just trying to undermine the faith, for example. We're against creating culture because, well, have you heard some of the songs or watched some of the movies on TV these days? Now, last week, again, we saw how it is necessary for us to encourage individuals in the faith to glorify God in these various ways. Not only in these ways, but in all ways. In which we are called to live our lives. It is no different for the father, the mother, the child, the business person, the scholar, etc. Whoever you are, in all areas of our lives, we are to be like Joseph, glorifying God rather than ourselves. While it is true we need to we need our own interpreters to glorify God in these ways, let's not assume, though, that there cannot be good by those who aren't believers. The truth is, there are many doctors, scientists, artists, etc who are exceptional in their skill and in their work, who we can thank God for. There are many who have done incredible things and yet do not believe in God. As such, our response to these individuals and their abilities should not be to scorn them, but to rejoice and praise God for the gifts he has bestowed upon them and the ultimate good which is being done even through them. That these individuals are like Pharaoh, through whom God has revealed his cause and his purpose and even his will. Indeed, this kind of understanding harkens us back to the beginning of Genesis. We found out there that all humanity is created in the image of God. As such, it should not surprise us to find individuals who are gifted in these various ways and God using them to do good things in this world, no matter who they may be. This is vastly different than what we find with the world around us. Now we need to consider something. Consider Chick-fil-A right? Chick-fil-A. Who knows Chick-fil-A? Thank you. Chick-fil-A is great. Anyway. Yeah. That chicken place apparently exists everywhere in the world, but here. (laughs) Drives me nuts. Well, as some may know, they're often under fire because their founders are conservative Christians. None of their stores are open on Sundays, and they have gone on record to say that they believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. Now, What is the response to this? Well, the world's response is to scorn them. They're often attacked in media because of these views. Just recently, within the last week, the University of Kansas demanded that the university boycott Chick-fil-A for their bigotry. Never mind the majority of the good the restaurant chain does. In the end, they are evil for the fact that they hold a different view than what the world wants them to. So what's the point in this? The point is, we shouldn't be like the world, purposefully scorning the good because of who or where it comes from. We shouldn't scorn the scientists when they make an incredible discovery just because they're an unbeliever. If we find some doctor, eventually create a cure for cancer, our response should be to rejoice over what God has done through them, because it is a good thing. This extends to the culture as well. I mentioned last week that there are many artists who are very good at their craft, but they aren't believers. Should our response be to ignore them? Or should we rejoice over the fact that their music or their movies or their novels are good? And we can and should rejoice not in them, but that God is good to give them such abilities. To me, a good band to mention would be the Beatles. Now, personally, I haven't a clue what the Eggman is about. Haven't a clue. Cuckoo Chooing, I don't get it. Did anyone know that song? Cuckoo Choo? Thank you, Mike. Nor do I understand why Lucy is in the sky with diamonds, and I don't understand why that's a good thing. But I can, but the question is, can I appreciate their craft? Sure can. Can I rejoice that God had gifted the Beatles with the ability to write good songs like Blackbird or I Wanna Hold Your Hand, the classic one? Or, you know, um, let's think of that. Hey Jude. Yeah. You can appreciate these things. As Christians, we are able to see good things and rejoice in them. We don't need to live in a bubble. But what we do need, we do need to be cautious. To make sure that we are appreciating the good rather than the bad. We need to seek wisdom to guide us as we experience the world around us and to recognize that while God will certainly use any instrument he will to bring about his purposes in the world, blessing us with good things, even if those instruments do not want to be played or even if those instruments believe that, like Pharaoh, they are truly gods. And that is the point. God gave dreams to Joseph, but he also gave dreams to Pharaoh. God gives to all people. All people are called, then, to return and glorify God, who made them and has given them life in these abilities. As, such, as Christians, we understand this, and as Christians, we seek to do this every day in every capacity in every way of our lives. Thus, we can glorify God with the good we do, but also the good we find in the world around us, and we can glorify God for the good. So why did I name this Following Wisdom? Because as we've seen so far in Joseph's story, he is the personification of wisdom in Genesis. He is able to discern when a dream comes from God and when it doesn't. He is able to interpret and recognize he is able to interpret only because of God. We are able and should seek to walk in the world in such a way as him, walking in wisdom and discernment. Likewise, Joseph reminds us that our own gifts come from God himself. Consider even his children. He turns the glory back to God. Despite the negative experiences that he has gone through in his life, when it turns around, he doesn't forget God in his rise, but instead continues to glorify him. Joseph reminds us repeatedly, really then, what it's all about. Whether it is in his discernment in a pagan ruler's dreams, or even with the naming of his children, he does not stop pursuing wisdom, which always leads directly to the Lord of all. As such, seek to learn from Joseph and his life, Joseph the Wise, who continues to show us that all glory in heaven and in earth in the end truly belongs to God and God alone. All right. Along with what we have seen so far in chapter, I do want to point out one little thing which piggybacks off of that one, um, the point we just went over. That is, we notice something spectacular about God in this chapter. That is, God is truly sovereign over the cosmos. For when we consider the dreams, the interpretations, and the outcomes, what we find is that God had promised to fulfill everything that he promised he fulfilled. We find God truly doing all that he had said he would do in the world. There is nothing the world can do to stop it. Now, there, this is something important to consider. There have been many... Or There have been those who believe that the cultures back then were henotheistic. Now, does anyone know what henotheism means? Anyone? Anyone? Okay, good. Well, you're going to find out what it means right now. What is henotheism? Let's find out. It's the belief that the gods were bound to the lands in which they dwelt. That is, when Yahweh is considered the God of Israel, for example, then that meant that the people, he was God of the people and also over the land. Meanwhile, other gods were the gods of their land, such as Ra in Egypt, or Baal in Canaan, or Zeus in Greece later on. What's more is that these gods were considered in conflict with one another, and when one nation overcame another nation, it meant that their gods had defeated the other nation's gods, or in the case of Israel, god of their nation. Indeed, we see something like this henotheistic understanding, actually, in 2 Kings 5 with Naaman. Now, Naaman was not an Israelite or Judean, but instead he was a commander of Syria. He had leprosy, and as things turned out, he was encouraged to go seek Elisha. Eventually, God cures Naaman through the prophet Elisha, and this is what we find at the end of his story, um, starting with verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God, but the Lord. In this manner, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow down myself in the house of Rimmon, When I bow down, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this manner. He said to him, go in peace. All right, so what's interesting about this? What is interesting is how he desires to take back dirt <laughs> to his homeland that way, when he, his master, prays to Rimmon, and when Naaman himself has to go bow down in Rimmon, that the Lord would pardon him. It turns out that the man truly believes in the God of Israel, and as such believes that the land, the dirt, would draw him closer to God. In this, we can see henotheism. Now, why am I mentioning all of this? I'm mentioning it because the whole scene in today's text basically informs us that henotheism was wrong. <laughs> Because as we learn from Joseph, God himself is the one who brought both abundance and famine. It is God who does it, not only in his own land, but all the lands. So when floods and storms come, God is still sovereign. When good times occur, God is still sovereign. When there is great abundance of life and prosperity, God is still sovereign. When there is lacking and when there is sorrow, God is still sovereign. What does this do then? It gives us hope for our trials and tribulations. It gives us hope because even if we should perish in them, we know our God is good and that if we have come to him in faith, that he will eventually lift up our heads just as he was the one who ended up lifting up the head of Joseph. Even if we should die in the pit, we know that we will find a life of glory in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Likewise, it reminds us not to lose hope here and now, because guess what? There is nothing greater than God. For as powerful as Pharaoh was and as mighty as his kingdom, not even Pharaoh and all of his men could stop God from performing his will in this world. So it is today, even with the nations and states, nothing can stop God's sovereignty. No one can. So no matter who is the president or the governor or the representative, no matter who holds the perceived power, in the end, God is the one who is sovereign. So find peace in this, because if we believe in Christ, then that means nothing can ever separate us from him. If we are in his hands, then nothing can hinder us except by God's will. If he has promised, then he will fulfill. Because he is sovereign and his sovereignty is a glorious thing. So naturally this leads us to the gospel. Um and I'm really kicking myself that, you know, I didn't think about that other point earlier <laughs> from the beginning of the, the verses, but it's okay. We'll come to it eventually, I'm sure. Um, but no, the gospel of Christ, because in the end, we do see elements of the gospel in this story. Um, it's not in origins, but we, we still want to discuss how you know, the good news starts with God existing and the fact that God is before all else. That you know, I was listening to a song recently, in which case the songwriter wanted to praise God from the beginning, but then he realized God was before that even. Um, and how wonderful God truly is that God is before all else. And that's where our origin stems. It stems from God being before anything else. And ultimately, He is before anything else. And yet, He still created this universe and He created this cosmos and He created us, humanity, to be image bearers, to be those who would bear His image in this world, to be stewards in this world, stewards not only of the land, but also with ourselves and our abilities. And all that we are called to be, to be faithful to him. And we can be, and it's wonderful, except for the fall. Because the fall takes our abilities and appoints them inwards instead of toward God. The fall is what says to each and every one of us, you know what, it doesn't matter what kind of parent you are, it doesn't matter what kind of child you are, it doesn't matter what you do with your life. All that matters is power for you. The fall tells us that it's okay to lie, to cheat, to steal. The fall tells us that it's okay to live with our base human desires. Now the question is, is the fall a good thing for humanity? I would say no. I would say that it's a terrible thing. Just the other day, what was it, yesterday? Another shooting in Texas. Five dead, 21 injured as last I heard. Then when you think about all the potential destruction that comes from nature itself, the hurricane, sure, the U.S. might be spared a bit, but the truth is the Bahamas probably just got destroyed, ravished. You know And we have all of these terrible things that happen, all of these things that occur around us, and then we think of individual lives as they're broken down, and sin infiltrates. And loved ones are hurt and hindered. And we think about how all the evil is in this world. And we can think about how something's just so incredibly wrong. And how in the end, when we really consider ourselves, how there's so much wrong with each of us individually. Because we've all been bent and broken. And then the question is, what can we do about it? Well, the good news is is that in today's text, we see what we can do, which is pretty much nothing. (laughs) Instead, we rely, just as Joseph did, on God's grace. Because in the end, the interpretations didn't come from Joseph. In the end, Joseph rightly pointed back to God. God lifted up Joseph's head. And that's a very important thing to know because previously, who lifted up the head of the baker and the cupbearer? Pharaoh. But God lifts up the head of Joseph. And he lifts up our head through redemption because we are in the pit. We are dead in the pit. We are worthy of being in the pit. And yet we find redemption through Jesus Christ. And through him we are redeemed. Through his life, death, and resurrection, we have found a redemption in which nothing can take away. No matter what the world says to you about how bad you are, and how pathetic you are, and how small and insignificant you are. In the end, in redemption of Jesus, you are a child of God Almighty. You have purpose, and that purpose is a glorious thing. And that's what we find in today's sex with Joseph. He was in the pit. He's no longer in the pit. He is now sitting (laughs) in a very wonderful place. And ultimately, it leads to glory for us. And that's the wonderful thing, is that when we start with our own abilities to point it back to God, we experience some of that glory here and now. We get to experience the joys of praying with one another. We get to experience the blessings of having family, church family around us and what that means. And it's a wonderful feeling, isn't it? And we get to know when we raise up our young ones in the light of Christ. And they begin to understand that God exists and they begin to understand what redemption looks like. And it fills your heart with joy. These are just glimpses of the glory. Soon we're going to be enveloped in it. And so though this world is falling and passing away, in the end we know that Christ reigns supreme. And so it's on him that we rely. And it's on him and his redemption that we find whether or not we fall or rise. And the truth is we rise. So don't worry if you stumble. Christ is able to lift you back up. And don't worry if the world around you seems dark. Because in the end, the light of Christ is far more powerful than that darkness. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have continued to teach us through Joseph and his story. We thank you so much that you have given us these individuals whose lives you've transformed. And Lord, you remind us through them that you are the God of all. And that though all of the obstacles in our path seem so large, so much larger than we are, we know that you are larger than the obstacles. And that even though we should be in the pit, even though we should be in darkness, and even though we should not understand all the time, we know that through you, anything is possible. And we know, too, that you can redeem even these circumstances and cause your light to shine out on us and shine out on the world. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue to bless us, that you would bless us as you bless Joseph, that you would lift up our heads. And that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we would know that we are truly in your hands. And that we have nothing to fear. We thank you, Lord. It's in your grace and in your peace. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.